Hi, I'm Ann Barker. And I'm Liz James. And you're listening to The Cracked Cup. September, I think we should talk about accountability. Just to be clear, <laughs> we're recording this in the beginning of July. <laughs> we're imagining for September. I have to say this because what if something truly catastrophic or wonderful happens in August? We're still going to need accountability. <laughs> and from the future here, we needed a moment of seriousness. The Crack Cup is meant to be both a humor and a meaning-making podcast, and true to the world, catastrophic things also do happen. Just one of these heartbreaking things is the fall of Afghanistan and all the danger, suffering, heartbreak, anger, and death that this represents. Please know that while this episode talks about small communities and democracy in a cheeky way, we hold the many crises going on around the world and in people's lives with the utmost tenderness and care. Okay, tell Yay. us why accountability is your idea of a podcast party. Well, <laughs> uh, Unitarian Universalists are talking about accountability and democracy a lot. Mm. And mm -hmm. sometimes we think those things are the same things and sometimes we don't. <laughs> and we have different ways of understanding both of those words. And both of them have become kind of a trigger for people, mm -hmm. right? That there are people who love them passionately and people who think, hmm, this is the root of all evil. <laughs> I think that democracy is the root of all evil. <laughs> well, it is a weapon of mass destruction sometimes. Shame is a weapon of mass destruction. Also true. The issue that I have with democracy, democracy is beloved of Unitarian Universalists because it was created at a time when religion was very top down. So the, the bishop or the whoever would tell you what to do. And we said, no, no, people should tell each other what to do. Right. And that idea ties with our, we have congregational polity, which means the decisions are made at the congregational level. Right. And when, when the seven principles were created and voted on, which are the things that tend to be what we agree on. More or less. More or less. The fifth one is the use of the democratic process in our congregations and in society at large. And I hate that principle. <laughs> Tell us. Always... Tell us why you hate that principle, We're Liz. supposed to love it and I hate it. For one thing, it's cumbersome. So we decide we need new chairs in the sanctuary and three people do a whole bunch of research and decide on the best chair. And then we end up having meetings where everybody who has not thought about chairs yet needs to voice their opinion about chairs and we waste everybody's time. So first of all, I do not like that because I think the person making the decision should often be the person doing the work or the person who has stake mm. in it. And many mm -hmm. things are not congregational-wide decisions. Many things are one-person decisions. Ooh, ooh, can I interrupt and tell you how we picked our chairs? How did you pick your chairs? So we had a chair crisis where our chairs were literally falling apart and the dust that was falling out was toxic nonsense. And so <laughs> there was this must-have-new-chairs-now moment. <laughs> And so we appointed a wise being to select the new chairs and the wise being called your congregation and said, I hear you like your chairs. Tell me about your chairs. And then we ordered the same chairs. Yeah. You know why? Because our chairs are great. Different color. Yeah, the color I'm not crazy about, but whatever. Right. I don't care. The chairs committee did some research and they made a good chair. And in your congregation, when 
the time was urgent and you needed to deal with it, you're like, okay, what's the fastest way to get this done? And I believe we should do that more often. You know, that really worked for getting online too, right? Yeah. Because we didn't have any time. We had seven seconds before church was going to happen and nobody could go to the building. <laughs> you know, this is, yeah, this is really helpful. <laughs> Democracy can get out of hand and then you end up with this mutually masturbatory experience that I just don't have mm. a lot of time for. Do I have to take out mutually masturbatory experience? Probably. Liz from the future here. Whoever wants the masturbation jokes removed from the podcast should volunteer to do the editing work. So I interrupted you. You were talking about all the trouble of getting the chairs and why you hate the fifth principle. Okay, so first of all, I don't have time for the fifth principle. I'm not saying that nothing should be voted on. Definitely congregations should make decisions for themselves. Mm -hmm. But not everything has to be done by a big meeting. I also remember the first time as a new person that my now home congregation held a meeting and they're like, we're having a meeting of the congregation after the service. And I was all excited. And I went with my little tea and I was going to talk about my feelings about all the things. <laughs> and then they were like... The first motion is blah, blah, blah. Do we have a mover? Do we have a seconder? And I didn't know what was going on. Right. Like, right. I didn't understand what was happening. And I didn't mm. understand why I couldn't talk. And mm. and I actually love Robert's Rules. I think they're an excellent tool for a number of things. But there was like 13 people in that meeting. <laughs> and so I think sometimes we use Robert's Rules Instead of using courage to say, we don't want to do that, that takes too much time, or you need to stop talking, you're not making good use of the group in right. listening to you right now, or or this isn't the right place for you. There's a whole bunch of scary things that we don't say, and then we put in a bunch of cumbersome process. Well, that's, that's the tricky bit about democracy is, is sometimes I think we create the rules because we think they're going to be helpful and help us work together. And sometimes I think we create the rules because we're trying to fix problems or contain people. And we talk a lot about how different systems, like Robert's Rules, for instance, which is just one, how those different systems are neutral and it's how you use them that means whether or not they're good. And I don't think that they're neutral either, mm -hmm. right? That they're not all totally accessible and totally equal. So if we're going to talk about accountability, mm -hmm. then all those rule systems have to be equally accessible. And what you were just describing is not having access to that system. Exactly. Although, to be fair, that's not actually where the important decisions are being made in a congregation. No, they're being made over coffee. <laughs> Right. <laughs> but these cumbersome processes use up a lot of time and energy. And I also feel like for Unitarians in other parts of the world, yeah. we're going to democratize the crap out of you is a bit of a trigger point. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and mm -hmm. so for us to say democracy is a fundamental part of the religion, you have to commit democracy in places where they have functioning tribal systems or functioning other types of systems. When Canada broke from the UUA, there was talk about changing the seven principles and one of the suggested changes, which I wish we had gone with, was replacing democracy with people should have a say in the decisions that affect them, which is way more culturally inclusive. And also democracy is by definition a thing that screws the minority. Hmm. And so if you are of a minority and we're just going to vote on it, the deck is stacked against you. So these are the reasons why I think democracy as a form of accountability has a lot of limitations, even though I think it's better than what preceded it in our right. religion, which was the Pope will decide and or the bishops. Liz from the future here with a quick reminder that if you are getting your knowledge of history from seminary school dropouts on free podcasts, you are going to get what you pay for. That summary was at best a radical oversimplification. My point is that 
often democracy is the form of accountability that is the least preferred option that catches us when all the better ones haven't worked. I think you're misunderstanding democracy. (laughs) (laughs) Democracy does not have to be stupid. (laughs) Just because we often use it in stupid ways instead of really letting people be heard but not letting it be nonsense like you were talking about where it goes on and on and on and on and on for 47 opportunities when you already had your opportunity and you choose not to take it so back off buddy they've picked the chairs well and democracy isn't just one thing right it isn't just voting it can be manifest a bunch of ways so i'm not ready to throw out democracy yet but i am ready to throw out some of the hierarchical top-down stinky mean oppressive versions of democracy how do you do democracy in a way that is better like what are some examples of democracy you've seen that are not what i am imagining i think that what's most important is that a group figures out for themselves what works for them Mm -hmm. Um, it could be that you know you get together the six people in your group and you vote on where we're going on vacation this year It could be that you decide that only when all six of us agree, that's the place we're going on vacation because we're not going anywhere that somebody didn't want to go. Yep. Have you noticed how (laughs) non-democratic and non-unitarian the Mirth and Dignity Board is? We have a board. You're on the board. (laughs) (laughs) Which we started with like eight people and the go-arounds and the blah, blah, blah. And they were all a brilliant eight people, but it Mm -hmm. still felt cumbersome. And we asked Fougence, who is from Burundi, or I asked Fugence, why has, is this exhausting? Right. Because when I work on your project, it's not exhausting. And right. he was like, you need a small group of people. You need to decide who needs to make those decisions. And you'll notice when we're in board meetings, he doesn't talk unless his expertise is relevant. Uh, the rest of us are still learning. <laughs> but when he says something like this is the area that he is here for, which is organizational development, how do we make decisions? And right. whereas some of the rest of us, myself included, need to weigh in on everything. But you are everything. But I'm doing a lot of different parts. But but the decisions of mirth and dignity are not made democratically. Like, moderating decisions are made by the people doing it. I don't think that's true. I'm going to argue with you. Democracy doesn't mean that everybody is running the thing. Mm-hmm. It's back to the chairs, right? If everybody has to have a vote and everybody has to have an opinion... You know, there's another way to do that. And that's to say, here is the 10-day period where anybody who has an opinion about chairs could send in their opinion. And then the team was going to make... Oh, we did that. They didn't... Nobody sent in their opinions. They all waited till the meeting. (laughs) Then then they have used their process (laughs) to do nothing. And then when it comes to the end and the people have made the chairs, then the question is, we have chosen these chairs. Is there any crushingly important reason they cannot be the chairs? (laughs) And that's it. (laughs) But even even not on the board, the actual hysterical society, one of the key judgment calls that has to be made is what gets approved and who stays in. Right. And Whenever someone says, I think the hysterical society should have more of this or less of this, Mm -hmm. Kathy kindly says, Mm -hmm. I have learned from experience that approving this type of post, while I can't defend it as a terrible idea on some logical principle, is going to create a whole bunch of moderating work for me. And I'm not going to do that because I'm the one doing the work. And we trust Kathy. And we trust Kathy. And keeping her happy is really important. And then inevitably... Some people say, well, I don't want to be in a group that doesn't have this kind of post in it. And we say, 
Okay. Totally valid. <laughs> Off you go then. <laughs> and sometimes democracy looks like everybody finding their spot, not mm-hmm. like us all putting our hand on the wheel right. of the car and trying to steer together. Right. Everybody pick their own car. Well, and that's that's true in congregational life too. Like often um, UU congregations are a place where people come in a transitional phase in their life. They might have either had no religion in the background of their life or they might have come from someplace where they felt harmed or they disagreed and they're looking for something new. And we are often sort of the... Um, the turnstile or the roundhouse of where you come in and then you look for which door am I looking for as the turnstile turns around. And I have quite often said to people in new people who are sincerely looking for a faith tradition to belong in, I get the sense that you are looking for more X and we are more Y. Is that true? And they say, yes, but the people here are very nice. And I say, is nice enough? Is that enough? Because if it is, we would be happy to have you here. If you need more X and we don't have enough X here, let me help you find a source of X. Mm-hmm. When I'm talking to um, my friend in Kenya about why white people structure their decision making in this way, I've had this conversation with a couple of people from various African contexts. And they say, you know, why do we do this? You know, everybody talks for two minutes. What if one person has a lot to say that's useful and another person has not a lot? Right. And like, well, that's sort of the mechanism we use to keep people from wasting the group's time. And my friend's like, well, but that's a waste of time. And finally, right. after a long pause, she says, why don't you just say you've spoken for too long and you're not saying anything useful? It's time to let someone else talk. And I've seen her do it in mm-hmm. like context where everyone is from that area and it's fine everyone's like yep nope this is better for the group if we do this but we just don't this happens in funerals a lot what does this um needing to manage the people who are talking in a compassionate Mm. and useful way like often in a celebration of life or a memorial service the family wants to open up the floor for people to tell stories about their person And sometimes it's beautiful. Sometimes you get a great story, you learn something. Um, Sometimes you learn that the person who's talking didn't actually know the person they're talking about. They just really wanted to talk. (laughs) Once I had somebody come to a funeral who came like thinking they knew the person and they didn't and they actually got up and told a story. And... um, and everybody very compassionately just smiled and nodded and thanked them. And then afterwards they left. How do you manage that? So so what happens when it goes long, that, that example you were talking about? Sometimes someone is stuck in their own pain, like they're in the trauma of losing their loved one. And they are talking more about their loss than they are about the person's life, which is not wrong. It's just if you keep doing that for a really long time, it stops being a celebration of someone's life and it becomes therapy for you. And that's one of the hardest things to learn because there isn't a you get two minutes at the mic (laughs) in the funeral (laughs) service, right? You get two minutes at the mic and then I'm going to tap my gavel and we're going to move on. Comments closed. Please fit your grief into this box. You have to learn graceful ways to help people stop. And so you learn as an officiant to 
gently maybe put your hand on their back, say thank you. You wait for a pause. Please, please give me a pause and say <laughs> thank you so much. We really appreciate your sharing this morning. How come you don't do this at business meetings? <laughs> because I'm not the chair. Oh, wait, I am the chair now. <laughs> do you know, I'm the, so I'm the chair of the UU Ministers of Canada, unless um, in the meantime, since we recorded this, I have been overthrown. <laughs> okay, that's not likely to happen. No, because then someone else would have to do the work. That's right. That's exactly why. <laughs> do you remember the year that Jess Rodella was the president and she had a spray bottle? <laughs> The list of rules and she threatened to squirt you if you disobeyed her rules. <laughs> when I was in the Ministers of Canada, I always struggled because as a candidate, I wasn't a minister, I was like a learner. You're not supposed to vote. But every time they would say all in favor, I would raise my hand and then some people would look at us. And then we'd like have this discussion about just a reminder, candidates can't vote. Finally, I put up my hand. I was like, okay, here's the thing. I'm going to raise my hand every time because I'm like a trained puppy. All in favor, up goes right. the hand. You asked a question, so, I answer. I'm a good little democratic right. puppet. Instead of having this speech every time and everyone awkwardly thinking, ooh, but Liz, you can't vote. Can we just ignore my hand? Like, right. just let me put up my hand. Don't count it. We could These have a little people. corner for the don't count me people. Yeah. Yeah, so then we don't have to have this conversation every time, and I'm going to keep raising my hand. Sorry. So, happy update for you. Now, candidates can vote. Oh. It was interesting because even when I was a candidate and I didn't have a technical vote, mm -hmm. I still felt like my voice counted the same. So that mm -hmm. seems more reflective of the values. Mm -hmm. I even feel like now that I am neither a candidate nor a minister my voice is still strong because I'm involved all the time. And so then people, if you're leading, then you're a leader. I'm right. just a different weird leader. And because Canada is so small, we're able to just know those things about each other. Mm -hmm. So I've been very lucky that way. Mm -hmm. There's a thing that I wanted to read about accountability. Tell us the story. So this is from when, so I was originally training to be a minister and learning all the things. It was my idea before it was Anne's idea, but she la, did it la, first because she didn't la, have small la, children. La. <laughs> so I went off to seminary and I'm learning and I'm, I don't fit in the ministerial box in a number of ways. I'm not very academic. I go on big yelling rants about democracy. Oh, oh, oh no, I, I have to protest. What do you have to, I don't like protests. <laughs> Sorry. The bye. ministerial box does not fit you. I think the ministerial box is wrong. Okay. Okay, so but maybe you don't fit in the ministerial box the way it is defined right now, and that ministerial box is broken. Okay, so here is my beef with that statement. So when I first started to realize I didn't that it didn't make sense for me to be a minister, that I wanted to train in social media and campaigns and fundraising, and I wanted to learn to be a different thing than the ministers were learning to be, that I thought was okay. an important thing, mm -hmm. ministers would repeatedly say, oh, but that fits my definition of ministry. Mm -hmm. And you're you're smart and capable and useful, so couldn't you still be a minister? Mm -hmm. And what you're saying there is that ministry equals valuable. And mm. I wanted to become a lay leader because I want to change what we think of as valuable, that there's all kinds of religious professionals and people for whom it's a side hustle that doesn't make any money who have these vibrant ministries. So that is why I do not like when people say, Oh, but the box of ministry could be expanded to fit that. If we make it fit every single good thing, then there's no good things outside the box of ministry. Okay, I would like to agree and disagree. All right. <laughs> All right. I agree that every time somebody does beautiful, useful, good things in a church, it often happens when somebody gives an excellent sermon. 
mm-hmm. that people say to them, you would make a great minister. Or when we have uh, directors of religious education and people say, oh, you you would make a great You're minister. You're so good that you could be a minister, DRE. And that is totally <laughs> a sign of not valuing a person in the place that they're in. We should exactly. value people in the places that they're in. When was the last time you said to a minister, you're so good at that, you could be a DRE? We should start saying that. We should start saying Mm -hmm. that. Mm -hmm. I don't know that I can think of very many ministers good enough to be DREs. (laughs) Can I leave that in? Yes. Okay, good. (laughs) Yes, because then that can, you know, start a fountain of anti-fan mail. Because all publicity is good publicity, right? Oh, yeah. Okay. So clearly you learned about publicity from seminary, (laughs) not from publicity places. All publicity is not good publicity. (laughs) This that's because I don't have, you know, 85,000 followers. Um, I don't have 85,000 followers either. How many do you have? Me? Like three. (laughs) Kathy has 85,000 followers. It's a team effort. Whatever. Keep talking anyway. about your other thing. <laughs> so that the other side of that is if you wish to do a ministry and be a minister and the system doesn't have space for you to be not the traditional minister box, that's a broken system. Because I, I honor and respect your decision to be a lay leader, to to value lay leadership and to be a lay leader. I think it's beautiful and smart and wise. Yay. But if you wanted to be a minister, which you have decided you do not, but if you wanted to be a technical minister, then there should be a way for you to accomplish that without having to squash your being like a bug. Right, but trying to increase the size of the box to fit all those people in the box... I think that is one strategy, but the boxes of our big structures are slow and hard to change. And what's Mm. faster is to let people be tugboats and have interesting things that we legitimize that are very different from what we are used to. You are an excellent tugboat. Thank you. (laughs) You're welcome. I think you should tell your story now. Oh, yeah. Okay, I'm going to read this story. This is from Facebook from... Oh, so it must be true. So yeah, this is from the book of Facebook. Um, this is from Facebook from May 29th, 2017. Facebook 529. <laughs> <laughs> and it's talking about the very last retreat. So I started being a starter minister and then I realized I wasn't going to be a minister. And I said, given this decision, you must revoke my starter minister status. And the Canadian ministers and and some important person in the U.S. stuff said, how about you just keep your starter minister status until it expires? So I was counting down until when it expired. And this is from what we all knew was going to be my last retreat. No more secret handshake. No, nobody ever taught me a secret handshake. (laughs) I'm the president. We still don't have a secret handshake. If we do, nobody taught me either. My secret handshake is hands shooting up in the air every time they say all in favor. (laughs) (laughs) And and now you would have been able to vote. I was never that excited about voting. Read the story. Fine. It was harder than I expected in the last moments of it. Specifically in the last song, when I saw Anne staring at me from across the circle crying. She told me later about how we'd just split into different parts and my words were no longer the same as her words. 
in that circle, singing in parts happens in this unique way where people kind of spontaneously fall into harmonies and rounds. And because the circle is so small, we can hear one another. And if there's a tremor in your voice because you're unsure of the notes, I'll hear it and I'll join you in your tune until you're on solid ground again. In that circle, the parts belong much more in our eyes and ears than in any book or instructions. And in that circle, even if you're on the opposite side, we're close enough that if there are tears in your eyes, I will see them. And we will both know that those tears belong in the singing just as much as the notes do. And so it is an accepted part of the singing that sometimes afterwards you run across the circle and you hug each other and you cry together and maybe you do a bit of metaphorical theology to take the edge off of the sadness. You were in a different part of the round, Anne said through shared tears, and then all of a sudden, one moment, we were not singing together anymore. Except we were singing together. Different parts, same song. Different parts, same song. You've been listening to The Cracked Cup with Liz James and Ann Barker. And I have so much news and announcements. We're doing our very first worship service where we make all the decisions on September 22nd in the evening. Details in the show notes. And if you are thinking, but wait, you guys do worship services all the time, you are right. But this is the first one that is ours rather than partnering with another congregation or group. And so we are making our own decisions like we're having cartoons and the occasional joke and stories instead of sermons. And we're getting rid of all of the talky announcement parts in the beginning because boring and endless announcements do not belong in worship. They belong in podcasts at the end. Other news. If you perchance loved 20 minutes of discussion on democracy and accountability within Unitarian Universalism, you might be a UU nerd, and if so, you might want to join us over on the Patreon. Our Patreon subscribers, it's just a couple dollars a month, are what make this podcast happen. And as a reward or a consequence, they get to listen to our outtakes, which is usually like a couple of jokes that were too off-color for Anne to let me include them, but this month's outtake, coming out in about a week, is another 40 minutes of us discussing Unitarian Universalism and how the denomination needs to change to make room to meet the future. And if that sounds entertaining to you, you definitely belong in our Patreon group. It's not just about outtakes. There's also special stickers, sometimes PDFs. Right now we have a private Facebook group as well. It's mostly Patreon subscribers in there, but seriously, cost is not intended as a barrier. And if it is a barrier for you, please get in touch. Details in the show notes. And other bits of Liz news. On October 2nd, I'm part of a group doing a day-long Zoom retreat on spiritual practices and leadership with the Canadian Unitarian Council. It is a great program that Anne was a part of developing, and I feel that my contributions to it have improved it. But if you are interested in deciding for yourself, and or you are interested in spiritual practices and renewal, there's info about that in the show notes as well. The Cracked Cup is edited by Liz James and produced by Anwen Dyko, and music is provided by Blue Dot Sessions. And thank you so much for joining us. <laughs>